Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Inside Out, the new Pixar film directed by Pete Docter and starring Amy Poehler and many others. And joining me from Slate's DC studio is Dan Coyce, a senior editor at Slate. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. Thanks you, for having me. I'm very happy to have you. You have been keen to spoil this movie with me for months, since months yeah. before it came out. You've, you've, you've claimed this spoiler. You've clung to it. And, uh, and you're, in fact, you love this movie so much that you are also going to write on it. So, um, so I'm very, very anxious to talk to you about it. Yeah, yeah. This was a movie I had my eye on for a long time. I'm a huge Pixar fan. I have daughters. So the idea of Pixar doing a movie that is just about an ordinary girl was very appealing. And then it also turned out that I totally loved it. So I was extra excited to talk to you about it. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're doing it. So let's see. Where should we start? So we, I guess we usually start off with a reaction. And we both loved it. My love is all already all over my review. But I'm still, I'm really, even though we agree on it, I think this is not going to be a boring spoiler special because there's a lot to spoil and a lot of twists in this movie. And the review really has to tiptoe delicately around lots of things and describe them vaguely. And now we get to describe them specifically and dive in. Yeah. So, yeah, so the story of Inside Out is the story of Riley, uh, who is an 11-year-old girl who, at the beginning of the movie, um, uh, we meet the emotions that live inside her head, the five emotions, joy, anger, disgust, fear, and sadness. And the one that sort of seems to rule the show is Joy, who's voiced by Amy Poehler, because Riley is a happy kid with a million happy experiences. On a day-to-day level, Joy seems to be the one who drives her action most often, and they're portrayed inside this sort of beautifully designed control room inside Riley's brain, where they use this very complicated control board to help her process and deal with the world. But then, uh, right as it seems like everything is going to be perfect and great for Riley, her whole life. Um, At the age of 11, her family picks up and moves from Minneapolis to San Francisco, uh, which begins sort of a a moment of real crisis, emotional crisis for Riley, who suddenly loses her friends, loses the things that have always been most important to her, has a family that uh, has parents who are in moments of high stress all of a sudden because of little things like the the furniture not coming on time or big things like a, a business opportunity that maybe is going awry. And all these stresses are introduced to her life and inside her head are the five emotions who have always sort of looked to joy to rule them all are discovering that in fact there are other things happening now that sadness is beginning to impinge on these emotions that fear is suddenly becoming prevalent in a way it wasn't before that riley is suddenly experiencing and and expressing anger in a way that she hadn't previously done and so that's the set i mean that so that whole description is not even really the spoiler that's the setup yeah and i I I should just jump in to say i think that that's all really skillfully set up by sort of showing a typical happy day in riley's life at the beginning so just to give us a sense of how complicated this setup is that we're cutting, essentially doing two parallel stories, right? Her external world and her internal world, which relate to each other very directly in a sort of, um, uh, I guess you would say, symbolic way. But Riley is not aware of all this, of course. She doesn't know there's like a little green, purple, red, and, you know, whatever other color person inside of her head manning a control booth. And there's not ever a moment she finds that out. She's just a kid living a normal life. So it's really the viewer has, who has to put all those things together. And I think the movie really skillfully and swiftly sets all of that up. Yeah, they're real masters at world building, and that's essentially what this is, right? It's it's using what we already understand about the way our own emotions work to give, and then giving us a new way to think about a, a sort of fabulous version of the mechanism by which that might happen. But they 
the, yes, they set it up very quickly and very, and it's very easy for, I think, not only adults to understand, but it's very easy for kids to understand. I took my kids to this movie. You took your daughter to this movie. They got it right away. Like, I think that I was a little bit nervous that maybe the, that it would be a little too meta for them or that the concept of, uh, of personifying these emotions might be beyond their ken, but it was not at all. They got it right away. Well, that goes to one of my questions in the review, which is a real open question that I guess we'll find out as this movie opens across the country and people start seeing it and reporting back with their kids. But below what age do you think that this conceit would be incomprehensible? I mean, my nine-year-old got it easily. Your kids are also around that age, right? How old are your daughters? My daughters are 10 and 7, and my 7-year-old totally got it. Um, but do you think I when feel... she was five, she would have, or would you have had to sort of set it up in advance or whisper to her during the movie about what was happening? I think five might have been tough, but I also think she would have enjoyed the experience. But yeah, I think maybe around five is the age at which the actual conceit might be too complicated for a kid to fully process and get. Yeah, because it's sort of it, – and there's probably actually a specific developmental moment when you start to be able to symbolize, right, to symbolize and abstract. And that's the thing that this movie requir- requires you to not only do but to enjoy doing because a whole lot of the jokes are based on those kind of abstract ideas. Right. So the actual plot of the movie, such as it is, outside the plot is that Riley is upset at her parents and she's having trouble in school and she gets frustrated and she thinks about running away. That's really – that's the plot on the outside. On the inside, the plot is that – these uh, the memories that Riley generates, the core memories that make her who she is, uh, are starting to be touched by sadness, by the actual character of sadness, who's played, who's voiced by Phyllis Smith from The Office, and um, and those old memories. For example, a, a great memory of the first time she scored a goal in hockey, which once was a purely happy memory and something that was at the center of the person that Riley was. A core memory, starting, as they say in this movie, right? A core, a core memory. memory, right, is now starting to be touched by sadness. What that means metaphysically is that she looks back on that hockey memory not only as something that caused that gave her joy, but as something that now makes her feel a little bit bad because it happened in Minnesota where all her hockey life was. And now she's in San Francisco and she's worried about that and it doesn't feel the same way. Of course, it's made wonderfully concrete in this movie because it is physically touched by sadness. The character of sadness touches the little marble that represents the core memory and it turns slightly blue. Uh, and it's such a great way of showing this very, very abstract idea of concretely showing this idea. Joy and sadness get sucked out of the control room in, in a, uh, a, Pratt Folly accident, and they end up way out in the wide, wide world of Riley's subconscious, the much broader sort of neural sphere that we're meant to understand that this movie takes place in. And they must collect up these core memories that have come with them and try and get them back into the emotion center, the headquarters, if you if you will, uh, in time to help their friends help keep Riley happy and healthy. And the whole time that's happening also, we didn't talk about the islands, but there's this other thing that's set up very quickly at the beginning and that becomes really important later on, which is that sort of Riley's personality, her psyche, is based around these sort of islands, which I guess are kind of created of the memories. And you see visual depictions of the islands, too. And there's – what are they? There's there's Family Island. There's Goofball Island, which has this great animation where it looks sort of like a an amusement park or something. There's um, Hockey Island. Basically, the things that are most there's important to her and that she loves. Friendship right. Island and Honesty Island, I think, is the other one. And, yeah. and those are sort of 
the um, the pillars of her her personality essentially. Right, and as the movie goes on, as the core memories that were fueling those individual islands disappear because they were sucked out in this accident or get tinged by sadness, they start to collapse or malfunction or in some cases actually completely self-destruct. And that's meant to represent that these things that Riley viewed as foundations of herself, the person that she truly is, are sort of crumbling out from underneath her and she doesn't know what to do about that. Yeah, here's a moment where I'm going to get abstract and meta for a second, which is that I really, I was really impressed and surprised and and by the end extremely moved by how much destruction this movie showed, you know, I mean, how much how it really showed adolescence or the beginning of adolescence as this kind of crumbling of the the foundation of your personality. I mean, it really, it goes very deep into some negative zones before it starts to turn things around and it does have a form of a happy ending as we'll get to, but but, uh, these when when sadness touches these memories at the beginning it's it's really sort of seen as a, a form of destruction right because joy seems to be our protagonist she's the person we're following and who who takes the most action inside the brain and so we think of sadness as this kind of ruiner you know she's just going around touching things and ruining them and at a certain moment the amy polar character joy creates a little chalk circle on the ground in the headquarters this is before they get thrown out into the wilds of the brain perfect this is the circle of sadness your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it. It's just so wonderful how over the course of the movie, sadness ceases to be this thing that needs to be quarantined over in a chalk circle and starts to be a really important player in, in Riley's mind. And that reflects the story outside, right? Because there's that amazing scene where Riley is feeling really upset and she's up in her room and her mom comes up and just basically tells her, hey, look, you know, we're having a really tough time as a family right now and your dad is having a tough time with his job and it would be really great if you could just be happy. And that's a lesson that kids get taught a lot that it's that the, if you can just, you know, if you are feeling bad, just smile, repress the bad feeling and be happy. And the movie is a really great among a million other things. The movie is a lesson as to the actual role that sadness as an emotion plays in our lives that it, it's not healthy to push it down and repress it and not express it or feel it, but that it is, in fact, part of the stew of emotions that makes us who we are. Right. And so Sadness becomes a more and more important character and not just kind of the, the butt of jokes, because she, as voiced by Phyllis Smith, she's this very droopy, energyless character who at one point has to be dragged around by joy throughout the um, the, the memory banks of, of Riley's mind because she's just so depleted by Sadness that she can't even move. And yet she becomes a, a key, key actor in the story by the end. Yeah. So Joy and Sadness are way out there in the memory banks trying to find their way back. And they meet the character who's probably the the, the other sort of co-lead uh, for a big section of this movie, the character who I think is most kids are going to remember and really relate to the most, who's Bing Bong. Voiced uh, by Bing Richard Bong, Kind. Yes. Bing Bong uh, is... Riley's former imaginary friend. Uh, many people had one of these. This was maybe a part of your life. It, I did have an imaginary friend when I was a kid. His name was George. And it was very heartening to me to imagine that at some point in my life, George was still floating around in there trying to find things to do. Um, but Bing Bong, Riley's old imaginary friend, who's sort of like a, a cotton candy elephant who cries uh, wrapped like Jolly Ranchers, basically. Yeah, little hard candy tears. Bing Bong becomes sort of their guide across the sub of across the subconscious, Riley subconscious. He also realizes uh, the sort of the limited role he's going to play in Riley's future in the course of dealing with sadness and joy and seeing the kinds of things that Riley is now struggling with. And so, at one point, very late in the movie, when the the movie is at its darkest ebb. 
Joy has fallen down into a huge, vast pit filled with extinguished memories. And Bing Bong and Joy fall down there, too. They fall into this pit, the the idea being that not only has Bing Bong been forgotten entirely, but in fact, what if Joy has disappeared completely from Riley's life forever? And the way that's visually conveyed is just is brilliant because these marble-like things, as you said, I mean, they're they're not the size of marbles. They're more like the size of a bowling ball for the characters, right? And they and they have these visible memories inside. They also seem to almost operate like computers or, or iPads in that you can sort of scroll across them and look at different parts of the memory or rewind it. But anyway, this big pit of, of oblivion is full of those balls which have color in the, uh, in the regular brain world. But once they fall into the oblivion pit, they become sort of ashen and gray. And that's just a beautiful and very sad evocation. And so uh, Joy and Bing Bong uh, work on ways to escape from uh, this pit of forgettedness. But they ended up there without her. And she is sort of just traipsing the landscape without them, unsure of what to do. And part of Joy's realization that sadness is a crucial part of her job, that sadness is just as important to Riley's emotional health as she is, is the way that she gets out of this pit of, for, of forgetfulness, which is that Bing Bong sacrifices himself. The the conveyance, the sort of rocket sled that they are using to try and get out, they are too heavy together to get out of the pit on their own. And so at the last moment, uh, Bing Bong dives off and leaves Joy alone to fly up out of the pit of forgetfulness and, and get back into Riley subconscious and the the realization I I sort of the, what I took away from this moment is the realization that Bing Bong was willing to do that for her and the the emotion that Joy herself felt as a result of this helped her to understand the role that sadness could be playing for Riley throughout this entire process. Right. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the emotional climax of the movie that you just described. And my eyes are actually welling up right now, remembering that moment and and remembering that, you know, I'm a big crier during movies. I easily cry during movies, especially kids movies. And my daughter often makes fun of me for it and looks over and kind of like pokes me and laughs because I'm crying at the moment of, of Bing Bong's, I guess you'd call it death. I mean, it's really his 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 disappearance. Right. He, too, kind of turns ashen and and drifts away. And I was, of course, crying. And I looked over at my daughter and she was sobbing, too. And it was just one of the few moments, I think maybe the first moment. And I can remember that the two of us just sort of clung to each other and sobbed during a movie. And it was, you know, it was, it was extraordinary. There's actually an earlier foreshadowing of that very same emotional dynamic where Joy sort of starts to realize the importance of sadness. And it's when Bing Bong sits down and has a conversation with sadness before things get really oh, dire yeah. and they're falling into the pit and so forth. He just sort of sits down by the train tracks, I think, with her and, uh, and starts to talk about how much he misses Riley and her being a little girl who played with him as an imaginary friend. And he cries some candy tears. And sadness just sits there and listens to him and understands. She gives him, you know, a little moment and then he feels better and goes on. But that's a moment that you start to see, oh, she's getting and we're getting that there's more to, you know, there's going to be more to Riley's life than just joy reigning every day and keeping sadness under control. Right, because joy couldn't console Bing Bong, right? She could not get Bing Bong to help them because at that moment, Bing Bong was overwhelmed by his by being upset at the way that he was being lost to Riley. And but it was sadness sitting down and letting him process through the emotion he was feeling and letting him talk it out and really feel it for a second. That is what allowed him to get it together and help them out. And yes, you really see that sort of dawn on joy that this that that there's a real role for sadness to play in this world. Uh, There's a really great piece that I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, Linda Holmes wrote for Monkey See on, at NPR, um, which talked about one of the very interesting things about Inside Out being that it's a children's movie with no villain at all. 
uh you know it does there's no bad guy there's no one we're trying to fight and that's not unheard of there's there have been uh children's movies before with no villains um but it's really notable in this one i think especially because as you mentioned earlier we are sort of set up to understand at the beginning that joy is our hero and sadness is not a bad guy exactly but sadness is definitely the obstacle and and whereas the other three discussed fear and anger are more sort of comic. They're not villains at all. They're sort of comic buffoons right, in a way. Right. And part of the journey of this movie, I think, for everyone is realizing that, in fact, the thing that we want for Riley, the, the actual human at the center of this, is for her to grow up and be healthy and happy. But being happy, healthy and happy is not the same as feeling joy 24-7. And so in the end... The thing that we're rooting for is for Joy herself, the character who seems like our hero at the beginning, to lose her prime of place in that brain, to not to not accomplish what she wants, to be foiled in her in her actual goal, in her stated mm-hmm. goal at the beginning of the movie. And it's a really complicated thing, I think, to to a complicated way to structure a movie and a very complicated narrative technique to use in a kids' movie where where kids are, you know, that I think you assume when you think about kids watching a movie that their understanding of of narrative modes is very simplistic and they have a hero and they have a villain and they cheer for one and they cheer against the other and that's it. But the way that my kids responded to this movie and the way that the kids in our audience responded to the movie suggested to me that they were very sophisticated in the way they understood that though they loved joy – the thing that Joy wanted was not the best thing for Riley. And the movie takes quite a while to get around to that and to, to, to show us that. And there was actually a moment, I think, where my daughter understood the complexity of it more than I did. It was when one of those last <laughs> memories was rolling down the chute toward the end. I think it's the hockey, the day of the hockey game memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's sort of half yellow, which is Joy's color, and half blue, which is Sadness's color. And uh, and I was sort of thinking, well, which is going to win? <laughs> you know, is it going to be a happy memory or a sad memory? And I think she was the one who understood before I did that the whole point was that it was now both and would always be both. Right. So let's talk about the actors a little bit because we've touched on Amy Poehler and Phyllis Smith a little bit and Richard Kind is great. But overall, I just really love the voice performances in this movie. Um, I loved all of them, but I loved Phyllis Smith the most, the most, the most. It was yeah. such an interesting she gave real shades to that character, to the character of Sadness. She really found interesting ways into the, the various ways that Sadness found, not only to be like comically sad, but also to be honestly sad in that scene that you mentioned with Bing Bong. And then, in fact, for Sadness to express happiness and joy and in like totally notable and interesting and believable ways in moments where where you realize that what Sadness wants is not – for Riley to be sad. What sadness wants is for all of them to be working together to make Riley right. And she has Riley's best interests at heart, even if she doesn't exactly know how to go about doing it. What about the other three emotions? Do you have any, any, any thoughts about the way they're either characterized, voiced or animated? It was interesting to me. A lot of the, a lot of the sort of pre uh, release run up to this movie was a, a long discussion of how apparently this movie experienced a sort of, mid-development turnaround that Pete Docter, who uh, who co-wrote and directed this movie, had for years and years thought about this movie as being sort of about the conflict between joy and fear. 
that those were the two main characters and that they went off on the big adventure uh, because that was how he had sort of viewed his own childhood. But then at some crucial point, the Pixar team decided that instead it should be about joy and sadness, that those were the two emotions who should be at the center of it. And it made me wonder about the movie that might have been with fear at the center of it. And it also did make me feel like those three emotions were mostly comic buffoons and they didn't obviously have as much to offer the story. But it also made me feel like there could be different versions of the story you could tell with different kids where it's different. It's two different emotions who are sort of coming at loggerheads right at the moment of pre-adolescent crisis. That also reminded me of something I loved in the movie that I would have wanted even more of. The kind of the part of me that just wants fan service could could happily <laughs> experience an entire other movie of just this, which is the brief glimpses you get inside other characters' brains. So yes. after we understand how how the controls work and sort of what color goes with which emotion. But we go inside the dad's brain briefly, the mom's brain. And then during the credit sequences, we go into, you know, the brains of various passersby on the street and a dog's brain and a cat's brain. And all of those quick little sketches of the way their emotions interact are hilarious. In one case, in the case of the teenage boy who Riley runs into, the one second glimpse we get inside of his brain of all five of his emotions <laughs> panicking and shouting, girl, girl, girl. That's, I love it. And I've his never fear seen. is in the fetal position on yes. the floor, rocking back and forth. Yes, I've never seen a more accurate depiction of the 12-year-old boy's brain than that. <laughs> that felt exactly right to me. All those all those are just so so brilliantly thought out and, and sort of so much psychology packed into that little moment. And they're also just visually very funny, like the way the dad's emotions, he has a, sort of a mustache and, the, and the, all of his characters have mustaches too, all of his emotions. So there's these little visual ways of conveying, well, this is this person's brain and that right. person's brain. And then the bus driver that Riley meets, he only has anger. Anger. All five of his emotions are anger. <laughs> because it's so conceptual, this movie, this is the Pixar movie of all the ones I've ever seen that most obviously lends itself instantly to thinking of spinoff and sequel ideas. Like, it's you know, because it, it's not really the story of Riley. I mean, we like Riley, but we don't care that much about what happens to Riley next. What we care about is finding new and other exciting ways to explore this it, this amazing concept that Pixar has come up with. I mean, on the way out of the movie, my kids were both immediately discussing, what do you think happens if they press the puberty button? And it seems to me like an Inside Out 2 that is about puberty mm -hmm. would be glorious. I think it could maybe replace health and sex ed in every school <laughs> in America if they did well, it I was, right. I was talking about this with some Slate folks who were in the, the screening with me as we were walking out, and my daughter who was there too, and saying that the one downside of such a sequel, or I mean, it, it wouldn't be a downside for the viewer, but it might be difficult to market the movie is that des the, that desire and you know other kinds of emotions that are more adult would have to enter into the scene and in fact that's symbolized by the new and improved console that's in installed at the end by I think John Ratzenberger doesn't he do yes. the voice of the guy installing the new console he makes his Pixar, Pixar cameo movie? yes as the guy who installs the the new control board and the new control board in addition to having the puberty button that you mentioned just has all these more complicated controls which is of course a great way of conveying the idea that as you're a grown up you have a lot more emotions to balance and a lot more kind of work to do to, to bring it all together. Yeah. But it would almost have to be a PG-13 movie, right? The next the next phase of Riley's life. Look, the people at Pixar are always yelling about how animation is not strictly a kid's thing. Animation is a is not a genre but a medium through which you can tell any number of different stories. And if Pixar got it together to actually deliver a PG-13 animated movie about the trials and tribulations of adolescence using these emotions... I think it would make a gazillion dollars. Maybe they're thinking about that right now because this movie had a huge opening weekend and is being basically beloved by all. Yeah. 
Uh, so we haven't talked that much about the visuals of this movie, and obviously in a Pixar movie, the animation and the music and everything that that makes these emotions, that triggers these emotions in the viewer is really, really important. So I have a couple specific animation questions for you, especially because you cut this part out of my review, so you have to answer it now. Do you think that the animation in the human segments claws its way out of the uncanny valley, or do you ever sort of feel like they are not as interesting to watch and as as realistic and believable as the more cartoonish emotions? They're definitely not as interesting to watch as the emotion. I mean, the humans are never going to be as fun as the insane world building that happened inside Riley's head. But I don't know that they were meant to be. I think they were meant to be sort of the, in a way, almost the the scaffolding on which the thing that has to exist in order to be able to tell the story the movie really wants to tell, which is everything that's going on inside the head. And so the actual struggles of Riley were not generic, but were familiar, and they were meant to be familiar. It's the struggle of of losing your friends and having to move to a new place, the struggle of having a thing you cared about taken away from you. This movie is designed to be for people who have ever felt the loss of something they loved as a kid, right? Right. Uh, the other, only other thing I had to say about the animation, and I wonder if you thought this at all, is that some of the islands, I thought that given that Pixar has such an exquisite sense of design and there are so many cr- people there with great visual ideas of how to represent things, I thought that the islands were a little bit dull. They are a little bit disappointing. I mean, you could maybe make the argument that they're meant to represent her childlike, simplistic view of herself and what matters to her. Right. Well, but and then everything I just said about the islands is, is sort of, it's, it's totally obviated by the stuff that happens when they're wandering through the wilds of her brain, right, away from the islands. So, for example, uh, her imagination land is incredibly beautifully rendered and has all kinds of, it's not at all hokey. It's, it has all kinds of unexpected images. Or maybe one of my favorite visual gags in the movie, the abstract thought land that they wander through, where they start getting reduced to just shapes and colors and lines. And by the end, by the time they get out of the abstract thought sort of zone, they're just like wiggly lines that are sort of the color of their emotion. I just love that. I also love Riley's uh, imaginary hypothetical boyfriend um, who is just a a guy with sort of Biebery hair who says, I would die for Riley. <laughs> and that's all he says and all he does. And he doesn't do anything else. And in fact, hundreds of him are manufactured at a key plot point um, to basically serve as a human ladder because he's not good for anything else. Uh, and that's so great. Yeah, just that Joy takes him at his word. Like, you would die for Riley? Okay, then form a giant tower of yous and sacrifice yourself for me. Right. And But that also was like a great canny, you know, visualization of the actual preteen understanding of of relationships and what and what a boy might be to her at that point in her life. Uh, and it, uh, it made me dearly wish for the four years from now version where actual boys populate that world in a much weirder and crazier and more difficult way to, to animate. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, in general, I, I'm not one to wish that a great movie would have a sequel. But in this case, I would be perfectly happy for a sequel or some sort of related sister or brother movie springing off. I would happily spend a lot of time inside the, the mom's mind with her fantasy of the Brazilian helicopter pilot yeah. who's going to take her away from it all. All right, before we wrap, is there any other observation you want to make besides sending people to go see Inside Out? No, it's totally great. I mean, see it with your kids. If you're worried about whether your kids might get sad at this movie, I will tell you that they will get sad at this movie, and that's why you should take them. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's probably the first movie my daughter's seen where a nice major character has has not made it out, and right. uh, and that's and, and and in a very specific way, right? Not just not making it out, but being forgotten. That's just this extra twist of of sadness, and and I think it was really formative and important for her. And then I immediately tried to compensate by ordering her a Bing Bong doll. Right. <laughs> I do think that this movie will do wonders for the current ongoing crisis in America of forgotten imaginary friends. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in and, uh, and spoiling Inside Out with me. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Andrea Salenzi. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.